Well, good morning, friends. As Stephen said, my name is Omar, uh, and I'm really glad to be here with you today. Our sermon text comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So I have the privilege of serving as a chaplain at the Whosoever Gospel Mission. And uh, the mission is a long-term homeless shelter that focuses on helping men overcome addiction. And so I've been with them for a year and a half, and I think it's safe to say at this point that it will always be one of the greatest honors of my life to be able to walk with these guys through the process of recovery. And I went into this job knowing nothing. I got the job through John Alexander, um, and everything I've learned is from these men. They have taught me much more than I've taught them. And one of the things that I deeply admire about the recovery process is that it is a continual in-working and out-working process. And so the 12 steps of recovery, they begin with step number one of looking up to God. They begin by acknowledging that in our own volition, in our own strength, we really amount to not much, and we generally make a whole lot of mistakes, and so we have to look up to God. And so this is the in-working. They acknowledge that the grace must come from outside of themselves, and so they look up. And so this entails surrendering their life to the Lord. This entails uh, making personal inventory and then uh, passing that on to God for God to reveal and remove shortcomings. And this is the in-working. It is the work that God is doing within the individual. And eventually the recovery steps move on to outworkings, the external work that they do because of the internal work that God has done in them. And the most common one is making amends, going and seeking forgiveness of those that they have hurt. And those in recovery know that they cannot skip steps. They know that they can't just move on to the outworkings without first having the inworkings. And they also know that the only reason the outworkings exist is because of the inworkings. The only reason they can go out and do work is because God has worked in them. And this is the same theme that we find in our text this morning. So in our seven verses, Paul is going to lay out five inworkings and four outworkings to the Philippians. And he is essentially saying nine times that this is the model, this is the structure in which we have to live. That first it is God working in us, and then we are going out and we are working. 
This is the overwhelming theme of our passage and the point that Paul is going to be making to the Philippians and the point that we will be making together is that the work in which we do, the work in our workplace, the work in our neighborhoods, the work amongst our family, these things happen because of the in-work and the work that God has done in our hearts, the God that is the work that God is doing in our hearts, the work that God will continue doing in our hearts. So let's start working through our passages. Paul opens to a call of obedience in the midst of his absence. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So as we've been working through Philippians, we have learned that he is imprisoned in Rome, And the Philippian church sent a financial gift because they cannot physically be present with Paul, and Paul cannot physically be present with them. And so he calls them to obedience in the midst of his absence, signifying that they were obedient to something while he was with them, and now that he can't be with them, they should continue in obedience. Paul's call to obedience in the midst of absence is a lot like a parent talking to their teenager or young adult child. If you think back to your parents dropping you off for your freshman year of high school, your freshman year of college, you probably got that speech about how they raised you in a certain way. You have been given good morals and ethics, and you should continue these things, especially in the midst of their absence. Or husbands, when your loving wife is going to be going out of town, uh, she probably puts some healthy food in the fridge for you because... Little Caesars apparently is not meant for human consumption. And the hope is that the Philippians are clinging to obedience of what they seen and heard and felt Paul say. And so Paul is saying, I have guided you in your relationship with Christ. I have pastored you. I have trained you. I have shown you how you are to live as Christians. But now that I cannot be with you, please continue in this obedience. And our hope is that the Philippians listen to Paul more than I listen because I really love Little Caesars. The question then becomes, what is Paul calling the Philippians to obey? He wants them to obey the reality of the inworking and the outworking. That for the rest of our lives, after we have been saved by faith in Christ, Everything we do, everything we are, everything we hope to be must be rooted first in the work that Christ has done in our hearts. He wants them to obey the reality that God's work in them is priority, and then the work that they do will flow out of that relationship. He does this by calling them to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The original language has this phrase in the opposite structure. It actually reads more like, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. And that doesn't seem like a significant difference. Um, But in the original structure, Paul was placing an emphasis on the fear and trembling. That came first in the sentence, and so he wants them to know that fear and trembling is step one, and then working out the salvation is step two. Essentially, to say fear and trembling is the framework through which we work out our salvation. This invites us really to ask a couple of legitimate questions. First, what is fear and trembling? And secondly, why is it the framework through which we are to work out our own salvation? Fear and trembling carry connotations of deep respect, of reverence, of awe, and all of these things pointed toward 
God alone. It is a picture of Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah comes before the throne room of God. God is sitting on his throne. He is high and lifted up. Seraphim are flying and praising the Lord. The foundations of the threshold shake at the sound of his voice. And what is Isaiah's reaction? It is to cry out, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It is a reverence in the presence of God that says, I really shouldn't be here. When Paul calls the Philippians to fear and trembling, he is really calling them and us to echo Isaiah's reaction. It's a moment of holy smokes. I am in the presence of a perfect, holy other God. And even though I don't deserve to be here, I get to be here because I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And if we think back to Isaiah's fear and trembling, it doesn't end there. It is in the presence of God that Isaiah has his guilt forgiven by God, his sin is atoned for by God, and then he is commissioned to be a prophet for God's kingdom. And so when Paul is calling the Philippians to fear and trembling and then to work out their own salvation, he is calling them and us to this because it is in God's presence that we are forgiven and atoned and redeemed and commissioned. And so it is our starting point. This is our first inworking that we encounter in the text with fear and trembling, reverence and awe towards our holy God. It is because of this reverence and awe, this fear and trembling to God that we then go out and work out our salvation. It is important to note here that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. They are Christians, they are believers, and so he is not saying to unbelievers, I want you to work out to earn your salvation. I want you to do a whole lot of good things so that God will be pleased. Rather, he's calling believers now that they have been saved, to have good works that flow out of that salvation. As followers of Jesus, we really love the doctrine of justification. We can't get enough of it. We love that we have been saved by grace. Justification is the moment in which we place our faith in Jesus' grace, and we are forgiven of our sins in the sight of God and accepted to him as righteous. And as a teenager, this left me with the burning question of what now? I know that I accepted Christ. I know that he lives in my heart. But what am I supposed to do now with the next 70 years of my life? What would he have me do? The Lord actually used this passage in Philippians 2 paired with the entire book of James to show me. And I can only say in God's sovereignty that he took me full circle to this in preparing this sermon for us. And so if you have been saved by grace and you find yourself asking the question, what now? What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? How am I supposed to do it? Paul is saying here that now that you have been saved, have good works that flow out of that salvation. He says it this way in the church, to the church of Ephesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved and this is not your own doing. It is God's gift It's not a result of works so that we will not boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in. 
And so rest assured that good works, good deeds, being a relatively good person, these things won't save us. But also rest assured that if we have been saved by faith in Christ, there are good works that are supposed to flow out of that salvation. I also want to touch on the note or the phrase, your own salvation. In a postmodern individualistic society, we may see that and think, my working out of salvation is about me and God and really no one else. But there are a couple of context clues that might just lead us to a different conclusion. And that different conclusion might actually offer some hope. For one, like we just talked about, Paul is writing this letter to a church. And so it is not just a few believers or one believer that will be reading or listening to Paul's words. Rather, a whole community. Secondly, in the context that just happens before our text, Paul is pointing to the humility of Jesus and how believers should look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. And lastly, this whole phrase, work out your salvation, is written in the plural, not the singular, indicating some sort of corporate action. And so the hope in this is that Paul is saying here that the outworking of our salvation, the good things that we do because we have been saved by Jesus, can be done in the context of the church. It doesn't have to be done as individuals. And this brings hope because in the church we find community. In the church we find accountability. In the church we find belonging. Paul follows this up in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And here we find another inworking. As we are working out our own salvation, it is really God who is at work within us. And as God is at work within us, our will, which is the, really our hearts, the things that we desire, the things that we want, will begin to conform. And the work that we do will begin to conform as well. What Paul is laying out here is a picture of sanctification. Sanctification is the lifelong process of spiritual maturity after you have been saved, where daily you are renewed in the whole person after the image of God. Daily you look a little bit more like Jesus. And so as God is working in you, your will begins to look a little bit more like Jesus' will. Your work begins to look a little bit more like Jesus' work. In the original language, all of verse 12 and 13 is just one sentence. And it flows as in fear and trembling, work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. And Paul is very intentionally sandwiching our responsibility between God and saying that the working out of your salvation most certainly requires intentionality, most certainly requires us to have some sort of role. We're not passive, but he's reminding the Philippians and us that the starting point is God, and the middle point is God, and the end point is God. It may be um, quite easy for us to, to walk away from this text and think, I just need to be a better Christian. I, I just need to do better things. I just need to be better, maybe spend a little bit more time in prayer or the word. But if Paul were calling us to this, he would just say, work out your salvation and make no mention of God. But he very intentionally places the working out of your own salvation in between God's actions to remind us that it's all God. There's intentionality for us. It plays a role in our sanctification. But the rest of it, 99% of it, thanks be to God, is all God. 
And all of this is done for his good pleasure. And now he follows this up with some very practical advice in verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. This is all an outworking of our salvation. Paul's goal to the Philippians is for them to be able to live blameless and innocent lives. And the means to this end is for them to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Because at the heart of not grumbling and at the heart of not disputing is humility. And at the heart of humility is Jesus Christ himself. This is why Paul follows this command by calling the Philippians children of God, which is another inworking. A child takes after their parent. And so we are like God our Father in heaven when in humility we choose to work without grumbling, without disputing, so that the people of the world and the people of the church can see and experience genuine humility that points them to the heart of Jesus. And then in verse 16, Paul kind of gives us some hope. Because if you're like me, you look at the call to be blameless and innocent lights in the world, and I'm supposed to do all of this without grumbling or disputing. And Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. Holding fast is an outworking. The word of life is an inworking. Holding fast is setting aside time to dwell in God's sacred presence, in the word which is living. And so that intentional decision is a work that we do, but there's very quickly an inworking that happens when we pick up that word of life. Because God meets us in his word. God speaks to us by his word. He empowers us through his word. He desires to work in our life through his word. And it's an honor, it's an opportunity and intentionality to hold fast to it. And in verses 17 and 18, Paul closes this portion of his letter to the Philippians by showing how this inworking and outworking have been at play in his own life. He says to them, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. See, the church of Philippi exists because of Paul's outworking. That church was there because Paul worked out his own salvation. He will say to them in chapter four, whatever you have learned from me, whatever you have seen in me, whatever you have received or heard in me, put these things into practice. And even in verse 12 of our own text, he calls them his beloved. The Philippian church exists because Paul was working out his salvation. But we also sense Jesus' inworking inside of Paul's own heart in this text. We sense a deep and profound spiritual maturity that is found in his joy and his contentment. Paul is in prison for all he knows the death sentence is around the corner. And yet he can open verse 17 by saying, even if, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, in that he is giving an Old Testament illustration of life being poured out. And so what he's saying is, even if Rome executes me, I am glad, I rejoice, and you should be glad, and you should rejoice. And in this, Paul is illustrating that he is content and he has joy that is outside of life circumstances. 
because true Christ-like joy and contentment are found outside of life circumstances. In these short two verses, we also experience the spiritual powerhouse that the Apostle Paul was because prison and chains and guards in Rome and even death were not going to stop him from having joy and from being content. And I would say that all of this is only possible because of Jesus who is living in Paul's heart. And there is one more in working and outworking that I want to point out in this text. It's found in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, here's the key, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So the theme of light is central to the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation and all of God's redemptive story, we find God revealing himself as light. In creation, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heaven and the earth, and it's good. And the first thing that he creates for the creation is light itself. And so as early as Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, we see God revealing himself as light. In the very incarnation in John chapter 1, the apostle John goes into this beautiful poem about Jesus taking on flesh. And he says in verse 4, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not and will not and cannot overcome it. Later in the Gospels, Jesus will repeatedly say of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in the penultimate chapter of the Bible, the Apostle John describes what he sees in the new heaven and the new earth, specifically the new Jerusalem, which is God's eternal dwelling place with us, his church. And John writes, the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the lamb. And we experience from Genesis to Revelation eternal, ever-present, dwelling, perfect relationship with God himself. And now Paul has the boldness to say that you are light. You are now one of the ways in which God reveals himself to the world. You are to shine as lights in the world because the light of Christ shines in you. Jesus would say, in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As we begin to end, I want to look to Paul's very first word in our text. He transitions to our section using the word therefore. And Paul's words are always chosen very intentionally, and this word really is no different. With this, therefore, Paul is pointing us back to the beginning of chapter 2, which we call Christ's hymn. And he is saying, with everything that I just wrote about Jesus, the living Christ, here's your appropriate response. Because Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, because Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being found in the likeness of men, because Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of all of this, Philippians, liberty, remain obedient to the lifelong reality that God's work in your heart is the priority. And then the work that you do will flow out of that relationship. In these seven verses, Paul reminds the Philippians five times that the outworking, the work they do, must flow out of the inworking, the God that the work that God does in our own hearts. I once read that those who struggle with addiction are closest to God's heart and God's grace because they are continually in need of grace. And they're continually aware and acknowledging that that grace has to come out from not themselves. It has to be from an external source. So by way of application, I want to leave you with step four of the 12-step recovery process. This is the personal inventory step. So for those in recovery, this step is about examining their character and their motives and their behavior and then submitting this list before God and then asking God to remove what needs to be removed, to change what needs to be changed, to grow what needs to be grown. And I would say we probably have something to learn from our dear brothers and sisters who are overcoming addiction. So for those of you who are in Christ, and maybe you're like teenage Omar, awkward as he was, but you're asking the question, what now? I know that I have been saved. I know that heaven is awaiting me. But from here till then, what am I supposed to do? Here's what I would commit to you. Do a prayerful personal inventory in light of the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul writes to the church uh, in Galatia that God's Spirit produces in us love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so a prayerful personal inventory would be honestly looking inward through the Holy Spirit in prayer and asking, what is my love like? What is my joy like? Do I have peace? How patient am I really? Would people say that I am kind? that I'm good, that I'm faithful, that I'm gentle? Do I have self-control? Because these are the fruit that Paul would say will become present because of the inworking of the Holy Spirit that lives in our hearts. And then you might just ask yourself, tomorrow, if God were to fill me with these things because he desires to do so, how would my workplace be different? How would my family relationships be different? With the holidays around the corner, how would the Thanksgiving table be more of a place of peace if this is the person that comes to that table? And after this time in prayerful self-inventory, submit all of this to God. Ask God to remove what needs to be removed, to change what needs to be changed, to grow what needs to be grown. These fruit they won't grow by our own strength, our own volition. They won't grow just simply because of our time in Scripture or our time in prayer. We can't work these things into ourselves. But if you do this inventory and you find yourself to be lacking, I would say that's a good place to be.
Because Paul says that in our weakness, the power of God is made perfect. And so I pray that you would find weaknesses so that God's power might be known. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So my dearest friends, may the light of Christ shine in you and then may the light of Christ shine through you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.